This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for our first recording of the new year with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Happy New Year. I do think we're all kind of learning how to think again uh, for the first time in a week, which is kind of a nice feeling. And I think um, maybe there are many awards voters out there doing the same thing and kind of remembering like, oh, God, yeah, I got to like talk about these movies and not just catch up on my screener pile. Um, But we do have some stuff to catch up on. Um, After we recorded our last episode before the break, the Oscar shortlist came out. Lots to discuss in there. Uh, There's a couple more listener questions that we didn't get to in our last episode that I thought were worth revisiting. And then the Golden Globes are coming up on Sunday. So we're going to do our best to predict them. Um, honestly, I can't even remember if I feel like they're easily easy to predict or not. Um, really got to get that brain back in gear mm-hmm. um, and maybe start with trying to remember things that happened before Christmas. Um, Rebecca, you are our designated um, watcher on the wall for the Oscar shortlist. They came out Thursday, December 21st. So um, things were really in the process of shutting down. There's a lot you can learn from them. And I think you did a pretty good job when you wrote them up for us of kind of scanning through it and figuring out the big takeaways pretty quickly. Um, do you remember what those were from those <laughs> two weeks ago? There weren't as many snubs as I remember from the last couple of years. I felt like a lot of the categories kind of way, went the way we expected, you know, especially international feature since it expanded to 15. I felt like it was very inclusive of everything we kind of expected. Um, Barbie led with the most inclusions on the list. It had five, but it was left off of makeup and hairstyling, which I actually think was one of the biggest surprises of the day. And also three of those are from the original song category alone, which is worth noting. Yes, yes. It, it did very well in song, as we all expected. And, you know, the biggest surprise might have been Society of the Snow. I think we'll get into it more about how well it, it did on the, these lists and what that might mean for the future. Yeah, we got a listener question from Audrey who basically pointed out um, Society of the Snow did really well. Does it have the potential to be this year's All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, if only in nominations uh, rather than wins? Um, and she pointed out that it dropped on Netflix during the holidays, so it might have been front of mind. I honestly don't have a sense of whether it got a big bump from that. Um, but David, you have recently talked to the director and the DP of that movie, and I think you're pretty aware of the craft and and what about that might get uh, Oscar voters' attention. So Society of the Snow is actually out this week on Netflix, um, which I think is perfect timing, uh, given exactly what Rebecca said. The movie had a very good showing. This is, to me, an example of kind of what All Quiet on the Western Front was last year in a lot of ways for Netflix, which is a very well-produced, expensively produced international film from a director that the Academy knows uh, that is getting a big push um, and that people are seeing. I don't think that's going to translate to a Best Picture nomination in the same way that it did for All Quiet, if only because the competition among international films is much stronger this year. Mm. Um, but uh, it's an extremely well-crafted movie. Um, there is one of the most harrowingly <laughs> realistic uh, plane crash sequences I've ever seen. Uh, the makeup work on the survivors, um, because this is a film about uh, real-life plane crash survivors, is really vivid and specific. And the overall filmmaking is strong. Uh, we have a shot list feature running, as you mentioned, Katie, that dives really deep into exactly how they made it, where they shot it, which was <laughs> all over the world. 
And it's something that I, I'm not surprised uh, that these branches specifically responded to. It does seem like, to Audrey's point, though, that there isn't a window for something like this to win four technical Oscars, like All Quiet on the Western Front did last Correct. year. Like there's, like, there's too many other big movies kind of crowding out that space. Yeah, it was a different kind of window for that movie, whereas this year is so top-heavy, and everything that's a big Oscar contender is also um, a big technical contender, you know, Barbie, Oppenheimer, etc. Everything Everywhere All at Once got nominated in a lot of places, but it was an independent film, and so it was in a different kind of space, uh, as was a coda or um, even a parasite. I do think uh, Netflix was really smart last year with All Quiet. Like, I feel like around this time after the shortlist, it was everywhere on social media. Like, I couldn't go on Twitter without seeing an ad for, like, the BTS of making of All Quiet. And I wonder if they're going to sort of ramp up Society of the Snow in a similar way on social media now that it's coming out. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of international features, David, I think you had said that you had your eye on the zone of interest from the shortlist. You might have said that on this podcast, honestly. Um, and it did do pretty well. It showed up, I think, in sound and one other one. Score. Score. Yeah, which is fascinating because, like, Mika mm-hmm. Levy's scores are really not something that uh, anyone, like, like that wants you to embrace them, and yet it made it in there. Um, do you think that's a strong enough showing to still say maybe it's going to sneak into the Best Picture 10, do better on nominations morning? Yeah, that to me was actually the biggest takeaway of these shortlists was that the Academy has watched and has responded to the zone of interest, which was my great concern. Even if it didn't make this these particular categories, you know, I, I could have seen it still getting recognition in director or, or even picture. But the fact that the branches, which uh, can lean a little bit more mainstream and even, you know, big budget filmmaking, the fact that they recognize responded to those elements that are so thoughtful and unusual for what they recognize in some ways um, is an excellent sign. I think that it is the across the board contender that A24 was hoping for and that it really deserves to be, um, as we've talked about. I was a little surprised, honestly. I had kind of, I had felt pretty uh, down about its chances to go all the way, but now I'm feeling a lot more optimistic. I feel like we've really been all over the map on that movie in particular. Because, <laughs> Richard, I think it was you who was saying that people felt like they weren't sure if they were going to like make the effort to catch up with that. Um, but maybe the shortlist gives that just a little bit of nudge to get there. I will say I watched it over the holiday. Um, my, mom, my, my dad and my sister, so my boyfriend and my mom opted out of watching it. Um, but we turned off all the lights in the TV room, tried to make it as cinematic as possible. And it plays pretty well on screener. I got, you know, mm. like it, like my, my dad and my sister were pretty like knocked over by it, you know? And, um, so I guess we tried to recreate the circumstances in which people in the Academy are watching it in their private screening rooms, you know? So, yeah. so I'm actually less worried about that movie not being seen in a, in, in theatrical release, um, than I was before. I actually wonder if it does benefit from an at-home viewing. I, w- I was thinking about this over the break a little bit because, it's a movie that might benefit from people being able to watch on their own terms because it, it's a lot to absorb. And if you don't know what you're getting into, you know, I, I remember when I watched in Telluride, you could sense a lot of adjusting in the theater and honestly some discomfort, which is absolutely the point of the film and seeing it in a, in a theater. But there are some people for whom they might not like that loss of control. Mm. Um and I, I, so I, I wonder if it does play because it, it is the kind of movie that, not to say you can go at your own pace with it, but you can feel your way through it more privately. I can see that being a benefit to how people feel about it. I'm really interested for when events start picking up um, in Los Angeles and New York in the next couple of days to start talking to people, being like, what did you watch? What did you catch up on? What actually played well at home? Because um, we're all kind of guessing about it, but that does feel like such an important uh, momentum shift that can happen in these weeks of the race. Speaking of, how are you, uh, how, Katie and Richard, are you guys okay with, I know I know Wonka didn't make the song list and I can feel your heartbreak from over here. <sighs> It's really wild. You went wild. so solemn there, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, it's not wild. I have to break my silence here. It's absolutely appropriate that it is not on the song shortlist. <laughs> are you saying that all 15 of the songs on the shot on the shortlist you know for sure are better than the songs in Wonka? I just want to remind you, David. <laughs> they rhyme chocolate with pocolate. <laughs> I socolate. I mean, if that's not songwriting, I don't know what is. 
that's a nomination unto itself. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, one can never be sure. But I was not uh, not too taken with the songs of Wonka. So, alas. <laughs> I would not say they are the best. Oh, they're really good. Anyway, I, the Wonka songs are not, like, as great as many other aspects of the film, I think. Um, but, you know, I don't remember Dear Alien Who Art in Heaven from Asteroid City. Um, but, you know, I just wonder, is that as It's good? wonderful. It's wonderful. Okay. All right. That was not uh, the one to bring up, Katie, is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Uh, Quiet Eyes from Past Lives. I have no memory of there being an original song yeah, in I don't Past know what Lives. That, I don't know what that all. is, actually. Um, I will say that the, the snub in the original song that really did get to me was uh, Jack Black's song from Super Mario, which mm-hmm. has been nominated Golden Globes, Critics' Choice. I mean, I, I think the question of a- Academy snobbery around Barbie has come up a lot, and I didn't necessarily expect that to come up for poor Jack Black, who uh, was really hitting the campaign circuit for that song. But um, it's a bummer. I feel like they could have at least made room for it on a list of 15. It was interesting that both that and Wish, this Wish, it's this Wish, right? Or is it that Wish? Or just Wish? I don't remember. I've seen it's, that movie. I don't it's remember. It's some, something Wish. Um, yep. This shows how well we know the movie Wish. Uh, <laughs> and how mournful we are for that snob. Uh, the fact that they both missed, though, because animated films are usually very strong here, especially ones that get a good campaign. And those two songs were very, very heavily pushed. So yeah. uh, I was surprised that neither of them made it. I think with Peaches, it's I, I, I would have loved to have seen it here. I'm, I'm not surprised that they didn't go for it. Yeah. Um, yeah, because as you say, Academy snobbery is a thing and it is the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah. Well, also, Wario runs the Academy, so he's <laughs> had it out <laughs> for that he's movie. Anti Bowser. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the Wish song, that movie is really no good, uh, as many people have said, but that song's pretty good. Like, I, I would have thought it could have squeezed in there. I need to listen to Diane Warren's Flamin' Hot song because we all, I think we all knew she'd make that short list. At this point, I would say she's going to make the final five because what can stop her? But Barbie can still only have two nominees, right? Isn't there's a rule about that, right? So they can have three on the short list. Yeah, and I've seen some theorizing that the branch would be less likely to go for I'm just Ken than the other two, but it just feels too powerful at this point. So I would say Dua Lipa is probably the vulnerable one of the three. Yeah, which is a bummer because I think that might be the best song of all three of them. Um, oh, one last thing on short list before maybe we move on. Did we all notice that both Wes Anderson and Pedro Almodovar made it into the live action short film shortlist, um, which is a category that has has had a lot of stars vying in it, but haven't necessarily made it through. But I, I wonder if both of them are going to make the final the final five there. And am I right that Almodovar's last short with Tilda Swinton did not make the short list? I think that's the, right. That's right. I think which, yeah. in my opinion, is is. Uh, Superior, but I am glad to see him here. So um, I'm not sure. I, I just never have a good handle on the short list to final list when it comes to the shorts. Um, no. But it, it does feel like this is often the big hurdle for the more popular titles. And that once they get through here, they, they tend to make it all the way, just anecdotally. Um, I don't know why that is. <laughs> and Wes Anderson does not have an Oscar, right? Right. No. So not. if you want a short film Oscar, I mean, I don't know, like everything's weird. Like Netflix put the short films, other platform, who knows? But that would be very funny if Wes Anderson finally mm-hmm. won an Oscar for a short. And maybe not even the best of those shorts, like Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. Like, I think all of us maybe have other favorites in that set that he made. But also if they both make the nominations and some other film wins and, wins and you're the filmmaker who beat Wes Anderson and Pedro Almodovar, <laughs> like, you're good, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, you got a whole career from that. <laughs> there is one other movie uh, I'd like to bring up from the shortlist because everyone's talking about Society of the Snow, but I feel like the biggest Netflix breakout was American Symphony, mm. which got three mentions uh, including for original song, which I think is very uh, competitive for John Batiste's score. I definitely did not know it had an original song because the whole thing is about him like doing a composition that was not made for that movie. Yeah, I was fascinated it, by that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's been the center of that campaign, which is why it's notable. I mean, there are a ton of um, famous actors, famous people who had songs in you know more obscure movies that don't didn't make the cut. That happens every year. They're always very heavily pushed. Um, And in the case of this movie, obviously it's a documentary. That's where its focus is. But it did have, it does have a really lovely song from him and the score also got in. Uh, So that to me signals 
a lot of strength, especially because that is actually a movie I heard about a lot of people seeing over the mm-hmm. holiday on Netflix. And that I think um, has a kind of emotional pull and a you know level of recognition in it being about John Batiste uh, that could help it break out even beyond where we're expecting. So that's one to watch. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to revisit some listener questions, some that we had uh, for la- the last episode and ran out of time for, and some new ones that came in over the break before we get into the Golden Globes predictions. And I did want to bring up this one from Mark, which is a pretty simple email, which is Maestro in Trouble. Um, and he linked to a Daily Beast story that kind of uh, ran down a bunch of negative tweets about Maestro, which I don't really take as evidence of anything because anyone can tweet whatever they want. But it was interesting to consider as a movie that did make it on Netflix right before the holidays. Um, I did see Megan McCain was one of the tweets talking about how she didn't like it, which is like, okay. <laughs> but, you know, it did pretty well on the short list. Like, I, I kind of felt like it was still in a pretty solid position. But I wondered, did you guys get any sense from either the people in your life or on Twitter of, of how Maestro landed over this holiday period? Um, not well, I guess. Not <laughs> well. People seemed very sniffy about it and kind of making fun of Bradley Cooper. And granted, this is just Twitter, so I don't, I don't know. But like, I have friends who are sort of vaguely in our industry who loved the movie. And so I think it has its supporters. But I kind of was waiting for like the maestro narrative to change for the better once it was accessible mm-hmm. to people and it just doesn't really seem that it went that way um i still think it's going to do well at the academy awards like i i think it'll get a lot of nominations whether it wins anything i don't know at this point but yeah i was talking about this with a friend last night who who's also a journalist covering film stuff and and like i think the perception of maestro is that it's classical awards bait material right like it's it's just made to win oscars and i i get why that's being it's being seen that way but i think the movie itself is actually trying to do something else like it mm-hmm. it's it's kind of it's kind of half an art film you know um yeah i don't think he really successfully decides which what, what, what how he's kind of framing this whole thing like is it a traditional biopic is it something else he kind of lands in the middle which is maybe part of why people aren't responding well to it but like I don't know. I just think I think it's getting a little bit of an unfair rap as this like nakedly ambitious awards movie. Um, I think there's more to it than that. And I think there's more to what Bradley Cooper is doing in it than that. I agree. But from what I can tell, it really did not land well at all. Like it, it it's almost the opposite of May, December and how that yeah. movie took yeah. off with people when it went on the platform. Um, and this is something we talk about a lot with Netflix movies is what happens when one of their, you know, this really ambitious filmmaker statement, which has been very selectively making the festival rounds, gets released to millions and millions of people on this platform. Um, That said, I think a lot of people whose opinions I respect also took a lot of issue with the movie, but I think it was also a matter of just how many people did not respond to the movie. It was not what they expected. I kind of think it is in a little bit of trouble, actually. I mean, it did do well on the short lists, um, but narratives are important. And I, I feel like the tide on it is in a different place. I heard some talk about the, you know, the nature of the campaign. Bradley really has just been everywhere. I wonder if there can a bit of a backlash can develop uh, when something like that becomes so apparent and so present, especially I mean, but he with was the, nowhere for so long. We were like, when right, will he emerge? I, I, like, he didn't not, have a choice. I'm not, I, I don't believe that personally, but I have heard it. And people have very short memories, as we know. Do you I think, think it's the, too earnest. Like, is earnestness yeah. on Netflix kind of a, a, a ding against a movie? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I think it's that. And I think that, like, we have had a few years now of an everything everywhere or a parasite or even a coda that feels a lot more like grassrootsy, you know, the fans love it. And and so they're kind of championing it. And this feels, I think people are perceiving Maestro as something that was made by the system for the system. And yeah. like, it's, it's not our choice. It's not like something we embraced and something that we urged for to get that kind of awards attention. It seems kind of designed for that attention by the people who make that attention. You know, like, I, I think that it, it seems like a plant, you know, like an industry plant. I don't think that's fair to the movie. Again, I think the movie is doing something interesting, if not always successfully, but like, but yeah, I think it's, it's the earnestness, it's the old fashionedness of it that um, just maybe isn't really jiving with a year where people are 
you know, we have a populist hit in Barbie, another populist hit in Oppenheimer, a semi-populist hit in Killers of the Flower Moon. Even those are all those are all from established people, very much working within the industry. But yeah, I think Maestro just seems kind of like the square of the bunch. And that's not just a joke about the aspect ratio, although it is. <laughs> Make it about Saltburn, too, then, at least. And and zone of interest. I mean, it, it also kind of reminds me of The Irishman, which I think, you know, kind of infamously gets a bunch of Oscar nominations and doesn't win anything. Because I think everyone was like, all right, Scorsese makes this giant movie. Like, I guess you're fancy. Like, we're, we're not embracing what you're shoving down our throat. And neither The Irishman or Maestro is at all, like, traditional. Netflix is not begging them to make movies in this shape. They're doing it because they, you know, they have all the money in the world and they can get away with it. But it, it, there is that perception that hovers around them. And it seems really hard to shake. Yeah, I mean, the difference is that the Irishman won Best Picture from New York Film Critics, etc. You know, yeah, it had good point. Cur- you know, a, a corner of support that Maestro doesn't have. It hasn't really shown up much with critics groups at all. And it's this is not last year, but I, I keep thinking about how Netflix had White Noise and Bardo, and these movies all kind of fell by the wayside, much more dramatically, much more obviously. But that these other films cropped up like All Quiet and. Yeah. Even the way we're talking about the shortlists, there is a lot to be excited about on Netflix's slate. And when they have a lot, it's always hard to know what's going to really click and what's going to stick around and what's going to build at the right moment. And maybe we don't know exactly how that will shake out for them this year because I think it is an exciting year for them in a lot of ways. But yeah, when I say it's in trouble, I just if I look at the Best Picture contenders and how many films seem strong you have to figure a few of them are a little bit weaker than we're expecting. And this feels like one that could be in that category. Yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, so we have one more listener question that I think leads us nicely into uh, talking about and maybe predicting some Golden Globes. Um, This question comes from Nick, who sent an email with the subject line, Charles Melton is winning. I love confidence. Um, He says, as you guys pointed out, he doesn't seem like the cuddly dads that have been winning lately, and he's more of a stud. Um, But if you think about it, because of the uniqueness of the role, he's kind of both. Um, He points out that the scene of him uh, with his son on the roof which, Richard, you wrote about in our special issue as a real standout scene, um, really reminds him of Troy Kotzer's scene in Coda with his daughter, um, which I think is 100% right. Um, And he's the only person in the category with scenes like that, aside from maybe Willem Dafoe. And then he ends his email saying, I also sense Robert Downey Jr. vulnerability. That Jodie Foster headline about the superhero phase lasting a little too long has me wondering how many voters how might might also be feeling the same way and feel like he's got enough. In the words of Don Draper, that's what the money is for. Hmm. Huh. I kind of, I while also thinking Robert Downey Jr. will win, I kind of think he's spot on in a lot of ways. And I think it leads interestingly into Golden Globes because we will start seeing some acceptance speeches finally. And... I think obviously Charles Melton winning there would be major and really shift the way we understand this. Um, but anyone giving a speech will help us figure out the shape of this category. Um, has he convinced any of you guys that Charles Melton is just going to straight up win? Mm. I've been pretty convinced. Really? <laughs> really? I, I, yeah, I really have. I I think he's just going to, I mean, not Robert Downey Jr. is also going to charm his way through the season. But the balance that Nick is pointing out about being a cuddly dad and a hunk is like so right on. And I think voters love a discovery in the supporting categories, especially. And I just think if he does have several chances to give very charming, 
acceptance speeches. I think he's running a really, really smart campaign um, that doesn't feel manipulative in any way, even mm-hmm. though he's sending kimchi to, from his mother to two people. It <laughs> to still some feels, people, to not some all people, people Rebecca. <laughs> Delicious kimchi, if I must say. Um, it just feels like he's found that balance that's really, really hard to do in a season. Um, and he isn't necessarily a front runner this early, which also helps him because it hurts to be a front runner this uh, at this time of the season. So I feel like if I had to pick today, I would pick him. Mm. Uh, like he could reunite um, the both the daddy and zaddy branches of, of the votership. <laughs> Very you know. famously important. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, house divided, you know, cannot stand. Um, I, I think there's a compelling thing with him because that's an interesting vote. Like that's like, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that Robert Downey Jr. is going to win, but I'm going to vote with my heart. And that kid uh-huh. from that movie was so good. And, uh-huh. you know, and maybe there's enough of that, like Olivia Coleman winning over Glenn Close, you know, the expected narrative, as Rebecca said, like to be in that first position right now is precarious because people then start thinking about other options for just for their own ballot, you know, like, so I know that I voted for something that was more, uh, you know, unexpected. Um, and if there are enough of those people, Melton seems to have the the sway behind him. And I've said on the podcast, like, I've been at events either directly, you know, celebrating May, December or sort of ancillary to it. And everyone I talk to about that movie in the industry, that he's the first thing they go to, you know, and um, when talking about it. So I think there's a a, a chance. I, I also, but I also think that like Downey Jr. hasn't really begun his charm offensive yet. And when he does, that could be pretty formidable. Yeah. I I think a lot of those elements that Rebecca was talking about and that Nick had mentioned that to me is like why he will make it through to get a nomination because it's so competitive. But the reason I'm not convinced is it's like when you look at the discoveries that they've rewarded over the last few years, I mean, they're quite literally from the best picture winners and Mm. it's, it's hard for me to see it happening from a movie that I think we're not sure how the Academy will embrace made Like there's a world in which he's the only nominee from that movie. I think it will get a few more nominations, but it's still so on the fence as a contender overall that it would just feel like such a leap to me. I mean, I'm just looking through Best Supporting Actor, and it's actually very, very rare for the winner to not even be from a nominee, let alone a front-running nominee. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's something that I'm trying to wrap my head around because, I mean, I would love to see it happen. Um, but I think Richard's also right on that we haven't quite... We don't quite know what that phase two campaign for Robert Downey Jr. is going to look like. And I'm reminded of Jamie Lee Curtis. I knew you were going to bring that up. Yeah, of course I am. I mean, on this very podcast, crying about her parents. Uh, And it was very moving. Uh, And she was brilliant on that campaign. And he is a similar kind of presence in Hollywood, I think. And I just expect that to to carry him through. There's also the uh, the factor of Ryan Gosling, yeah, yeah. who is in his own way a passion pick from a stronger overall contender, uh, mm. who's another very atypical kind of pick for sure, um, but that just might have more uh, in his corner along those lines. I could see a lot of people who w- want to pick something quirkier than Daniel Jr., Going with Gosling, you know, and sort of like chuckling to themselves as they submit mm-hmm. their ballot. Like, I can't believe I voted for Ken. And then enough <laughs> people do that and then he wins, you know, mm-hmm. um, to such an extent that like Melton and Gosling weirdly could split a vote. The hunk vote. And then Daniel Jr. still wins. So who's going to win the Golden Globe? Let's get into some predictions. Like, oh, That's is, a different question. I, yeah, I, but so, like, you know, this is the first one we have. Like, I think we've, we've talked a lot over the years about... Even if the Golden Globes voting body is not the same as the Oscars, who gets to give a speech has uh, a lot of impact on momentum um, Uh and who moves forward here. Um, And I think any of these people, I mean, Robert De Niro wins. Like, I don't think his speech would really um, like be a barn barn burner to uh, kick off a campaign. Although, who knows? He hates Trump (laughs) and he he might talk a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Also a Golden Globes tradition. Um, (laughs) I mean, there is certainly a part of me that feels like anybody could win in this truly because... We haven't had a face-off like this, but I would still go for Donnie Jr. for this first round for the Golden Globes. 
I guess the only thing I would say about that is that if it was the original, just the 80 or so, however many members of the HFPA voting, Downey Jr., absolutely. They yes. love him. Big movie star giving a speech. But with the addition of these other voters who are not members of the HFPA, they are just voters for the Golden Globes, maybe we could start to see the Golden Globes functioning more like a critics group. And hmm. Charles Melton has been successful, at least at New York. And, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. So maybe maybe that's kind of the way to, to kind of look at these is like, it's more, it's more, it's a big critics group now with, you know, 80 or so remaining freaks, <laughs> you know, the everyone else. Um, and so maybe the, the everyone else balances out the, the tendency to just give it to the big movie star. But, um, but I don't know. I still agree with you, Katie. I still think people are very curious about Denny Jr. Um, what he'll say, you know, yeah. um, he was very charming in his actors on actors with, um, with Mark Ruffalo, uh, but that was kind of, as far as I'm aware, it in terms of his public campaigning. So I don't know. I think the curiosity factor will push him over the edge. Uh, maybe we should zoom out a little bit and start with the uh, the lead categories since I kind of jumped ahead. Um, and to kind of put together motion picture drama and comedy, like I fully expect this to just be Oppenheimer and Barbie kind of in a walk. Um, do, you, do you guys see any potential for surprise on either of those? That's what I thought, too, but I saw Richard picked Close of the Flower Moon. Mm, Richard. Well, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Like, I, I, I'm, like, <laughs> no, fully but back guessing. back up your bold claim. For Best Picture, Killers uh, of the Flower Moon, I, I I just think it satisfies both people who are voting who want the art artier films and the people who are more sort of populist about it. Like, I think it kind mm -hmm. of sits really nicely, um, whereas, you know, you could look at something like Oppenheimer, which is the populist hit and is well-made and everything like that, but maybe it's too obvious in a way and it doesn't have the same sort of political urgency. I mean, look, nuclear weapons are politically urgent, certainly, but like, I think Flower Moon is, is tackling something very specifically American and, um, you know, pertinent, although actually maybe not even specifically American, given what's happening around the world right now. I don't know. I just think its political dimensions and its art artistry are well-balanced uh, as a sort of awards thing that people will vote for it. But Again, I'm just guessing fully. It is kind of an interesting test of just how strong Killers of the Flower Moon is because they love Scorsese. I mean, he won for Hugo and the movie's fared incredibly well so far. So if it does win something big here other than Lily Gladstone, it probably is worth paying attention to is, is mm -hmm. in that conversation. Uh, maybe in a way we haven't, you know, allowed it to be a part of that in some time. Well, I think we all keep thinking of The Irishman, right? Not to bring up The Irishman for the second time in a single podcast. But there's that assumption. It's like, well, Scorsese is going to be kind of taken for granted as an old master. But Killers has kind of refuted that trend in an interesting way. And The Irishman was another gangster movie, you know. And, and I guess you could make the argument that Flower Moon was too. But, yeah. like, it's something different, you know. Yeah, and definitely. I think it stands out as a more distinctly new feature from Martin Scorsese, whereas Irishman felt like picking up a, an ongoing conversation. I mean, I also went weird and for musical and comedy and picked four things. So mm. <laughs> apparently in our oh, predictions, no. we, we did not. I just and I, I, I do think it's between Barbie and that. But I felt sort of the same that I wonder if this group of voters being more international in theory and more like a critics group will not want to make this just Barbie Oppenheimer, which is the narrative we've been seeing all season and do something more interesting with these wins. I don't know if that is possible. I would be completely not surprised if it wins, uh, if Barbie wins. But I also felt like because we have, they have this new cinematic achievement category, which is going to go to Barbie, I assume, or Oppenheimer. Mm, I, I haven't, I have a theory on that. We'll get there. that kind of, yeah, that kind of hurts like, oh, well, Barbie's going to win this new, brand new category, silly category, so maybe we give it to someone else, you know, something else. Uh, so, I don't know, Richard and I are either going to look really smart or really stupid in a few days, so. I think the cinematic and box off achievement goes to Taylor Swift. Oh, Easily. Like, interesting. You you make the category so that you get someone like her to come to the ceremony. She is the you most famous person winning. in the world. Tell her she's winning, for sure, um, because why wouldn't they? <laughs> oh, I'm, uh, um, yeah. And she makes a speech. Like, I think her speech would be a bigger deal than any of the people that we're talking about. Um, not that they would give it to, on the notion of who they want to see see a speech, but also, like, what else do you base the criteria in this category on? Like, it doesn't even... We're about to find out. It doesn't even have best in the title. Like, it's just achievement. So, like, it can be whatever <laughs> you want it to best. be. 
You achieved um, releasing a movie in theaters that made a lot of money. <laughs> Although, I, I have to say, because I'm, I'm a really, um, I, I follow this very closely. You know, obviously for years I've been a football fan. The Kansas City <laughs> Chiefs, where I believe Travis Kelsey, that's where he plays. I have heard of him, yes. They are, are playing the Los Angeles Chargers on that Sunday. Oh. So maybe Taylor can't come. Ooh. Wait, you can't like not go to your She's own award ceremony because your boyfriend. Over her career. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's Richard, against her name. Richard, what does your search history look like along these lines? Um, are you implying that I just searched Kansas City schedule <laughs> about two minutes ago? But that does mean that he couldn't come, which I think oh. uh, will be very frustrating because that was probably probably everyone would like to see them walk the red carpet together so she breaks up with him on stage while accepting (laughs) you chose your game over my golden globe nomination uh that is fascinating though can't wait for the song about that but don't you think if the voters pick swift it just makes this joke category even more of a joke i just i mean it's it's a box office like it's Uh, you want to like reward something that is a good movie that got people to come to theaters like Eras did it. I don't know. I also watched it a lot over the break, so maybe I've just been like Taylor pilled. <laughs> I don't. Me. I don't know that. I don't think they're above doing it. I just. I really. We don't know how they're defining the category, so or whether they would inform in advance, which I think would impact. Nothing would feel more anticlimactic than them giving it to the movie and her not being there. It would just be yeah. a complete yeah. waste of a minute or however long that would take. Um, I do really like your poor things theory, Rebecca. And then I just remembered that they gave it to Banshees of Inisharan over mm-hmm. everything everywhere last year. Uh, and they actually have rather consistently gone with the sort of weird European choice over the bigger American choice, the broader American choice. And that feels like a trend that will not change with this new group of voters. That seems like something that may only accelerate. So, yeah, that seems like a strong theory to me. That is a decent theory. Imagining an individual voter doing Barbie as their box office thing and yep. then poor things in that category. But then I still think I would say they'd go for Oppenheimer. But who knows? Because I'm not sure where else poor things may show up other than, you know, maybe actress. So I do feel like it might be the place they give it its big due. Um, I was going to say, I don't know that we have time to go through every single Globes category, much less the television side of things, which I don't mean to ignore entirely, but man, it's hard to think about. Um, but are there particular acting races at the Globes that you think uh, will be interesting? Rebecca, you brought up actress. So so you think that, uh, um, oh, no, Emma? hang on. Emma Stone is in a different category than Lily Gladstone. Oh. Hang on. I got to re- get my Globes logic back in place. So this could just be Lily Gladstone and Emma Stone, both. Yeah. That feels right, I think. And 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 it feels like if those two are probably going head to head in, in the future, yeah. Uh, we'll be seeing both of them give speeches. Yeah. If those aren't the two, that would be a surprise. Yeah. What if Margot Robbie wins for Barbie? And that's the, the populism of the Golden Globes reign supreme. I think Sandra Huller has a better chance in drama than Margot mm. Robbie does in comedy. Interesting. The Isabel Huppert win looms. What did Isabel Huppert win for? That was um, the L- Verhoeven L- movie? Okay. Yeah. That's see, David, your knowledge of like rando Golden Globes wins from the past, is, even though it's <laughs> a different voting. This is not body. a compliment. Just stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Anatomy has four nominations, and she's exceptional in the movie. We rewatched it. I, re- I rewatched it with a uh, family over the holidays, and everyone was blown away by her. IndieWire had a uh, a filmmaker survey of their favorite movies of the year. It was the most cited movie. Wow. Um, and it's a you know it's an artier, more international group than the Academy even, um, but probably one that maybe reflects who these voters are. I don't know. I I feel like she's very strong, and this is a place given it's a smaller group, and they love that movie where maybe she pulls off a big surprise. That would be fascinating. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. 
I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Um, to look at the, to the male acting categories, we talked a lot about how best actor still feels like a real puzzle and dividing it up into uh, drama and comedy still doesn't really help. Um, no. In our predictions, I guess I went with Bradley Cooper for Maestro, which I'm now looking at and thinking, whoops, should I have changed it? But I'm going to stick with it for now. Um, and then, Richard, you picked Jeffrey Wright in comedy. Um, but that has Jeffrey Wright winning over Paul Giamatti. And then I went with Bradley Cooper winning over Killian Murphy. And I don't feel confident about either of those. Do you, Richard? I think Giamatti is a victim of his own talent in a way. Like everyone's like, oh, he's great, but that's he's just doing his Paul Giamatti thing, you know? Like, and I, I think that, I think I disagree with that straw man that I've just invented, but like, um, <laughs> I, I, I think that Wright will be picked because it's a way to reward that movie. And it's a big, you know, very visible way to reward that movie when maybe they're not going to quite vote it for it in in the you know other categories. Um, Jeffrey Wright has worked with a ton of people. Although I guess this is not really industry voting anyway. But but he's just kind of like people love him, you know, and he's been around. And here's this great lead film performance finally. You know, he doesn't get a lot of those. And uh, yeah, so I think he has that power where where people where Giamatti is a little bit more expected, and then the other people in that category I think are just happy to be there. But who knows? I mean, I could be wrong. I just think <laughs> that, like, if we're thinking of this as a critics group, I just kind of see those journalists being more likely to go Jeffrey Wright's way. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it again. I'm sorry. But are we all aware that Paul Giamatti won this category for Barney's version? Wow. Years ago. When are we not thinking about Barney's version? I mean, <laughs> I've brought it up so many times this season, and it's been a thrill. Every week, I feel like he's talking about Barney's version. <laughs> Does that make you think that Giamatti might win here, David? Well, I developed a theory uh, that I've not shared with anyone over the holiday that he's winning uh, the ah. Oscars. So. Oh. Does that mean you've backed off on the holdovers winning Best Picture, though? No, it does not. <laughs> I appreciate you standing by <laughs> your guns. I have it with more wins now. Um, no, I... I, I I feel like I completely agree with Richard, and yet I feel like there's also something coalescing around him in this movie that is like, oh, right, he is this good. And it is such a kind of quintessential, definitive Giamatti performance that I'm sensing some rallying around him. And I, I agree this is a really tight category. I don't know how these voters will, will lean. Um, and I think it's an easy way to put Jeffrey Wright on the board, put American Fiction on the board. But I, I do think it's quite close between them. So I agree with you, Katie. I, both for drama and this one, I don't really know between the two. Can I also provide some crucial context here to what David has brought up in terms of Barney's version? Oh, who he was nominated against? <laughs> Thank Paul Giamatti you. was nominated against Jake Gyllenhaal for Love and Other Drugs. Oh, boy. Kevin Spacey for Casino Jack. <laughs> and then two Johnny Depp performances, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland and The Tourist. So that if, was the year of The Tourist. If Giamatti oh did not win that award, he, should, he would have quit Hollywood forever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if people were predicting that would be fun to read. The Golden Globes have put so much work into uh, bolstering their reputation, and then you bring all that up, Richard. And just <laughs> God, it's true. How days. far? How far we have come? I'd like to remind you again. That's Kevin Spacey and two Johnny Depp performances. <laughs> so things have gotten better since 2008. It turns out. I, I agree. It's between Jamati and Wright, but I think whoever gets to go on that stage, it's a huge, huge win for for that person in that film because. I feel like they'll give a great speech and it'll be a, a big boost um, for either of them. Well, how about in drama where I'm just going to say I'm sticking with Bradley Cooper because I think if anything about his like media blitz has been a huge advantage is probably with the Golden Globes voters who he's probably been doing a lot of those media opportunities with. Um, so I'm going to stick with him. But um, what do you guys think would beat him? I agree. Uh, I think he will win there. I think it just depends on how strong Oppenheimer is. If it's like a total love fest, then Killian will be swept up in that. But it feels like a place where Bradley would win. 
He did lose for A Star is Born, um, but that was to Rami Malek, who Bohemian Rhapsody ran in drama despite being uh, a jukebox musical. And, um, <laughs> Very strange. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was such a strong Oscar frontrunner at that point. So I don't know that that says too much, and it just feels like the kind of performance that the Globes would go for. Although, to Rebecca's disclaimer at the beginning of this discussion, we don't know what the Globes typically go for in its mm-hmm. new, uh, you know, incarnation. So it feels like the safest bet. So I'll stick with it, but I, I truly don't know. Is there a version where Anne Richards' theory that Killers is kind of the um, the happy medium between populism and art that like Leonardo DiCaprio gets? Uh, shuffled up to the front of the pack. Like, he's not someone who's in need of an Oscar or anything and has really been campaigning mostly on behalf of Lily Gladstone, as we keep saying. But, you know, that's another movie where we don't really know how strong it is. I just don't think people want to vote for that character. No. Yeah, he sucks. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I <don't blame> <laughs> like, I think, I think it's still a question mark about him getting in the five for Oscar, you know? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. I think... I think he's he's really good in the movie, and it's kind of a testament to his performance that people are sort of like, you know, um, they want to vote for the the kind of hero of the film, and that's Lily Gladstone. Yeah. Uh, well, we've talked about all the other acting categories, so we should probably wrap it up with um, Best Supporting Actress. And this does bring me back to the Paul Giamatti idea. You're talking about Jeffrey Wright being a way to reward American fiction. Does Paul Giamatti get less attention because there's a very easy way to reward the holdovers, which is Dave Joy Randolph, who's been like running the table on all the critics' awards up to this point? Do you think that's a factor there, too? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think that people... At least in my experience, when I'm filling out a ballot, like so, I, I have to do New York, National Society of Film Critics the first ballot for that because we're voting this weekend. Like you do, kind of want to spread the wealth, and I don't know that that's the psychology of the people voting for the Golden Globes. But like, I, I really liked this array of movies, and where can I give them each an award? And, mm-hmm. and and here's the holdovers. Easy, easy, easy pick. Yeah, she feels like the strongest acting lock of any of the film nominees to me, Randolph. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially since they didn't love the color purple. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was going to ask if, um, is the Golden Globes a place where a surprise can emerge like Danielle Brooks or, you know, Jodie Foster, who we were all talking so much about uh, in the... In, the look, Mauritanian she, she Golden has, Globe winner. And she <laughs> gave that great Golden Globe speech uh, when she won the honorary award, I think. Um, she has a strong history with the Golden Globes. Did you say great? Uh, <laughs> memorable? <laughs> Fascinating. Fascinating. Fascinating to good um, Yeah, great. No, great. In its own way. Yeah. Um, it does feel like, you know, if a surprise is going to emerge in this, like, you know, this could be Dave and Joy Randolph getting, you know, coronated as just the unbeatable front runner, or a contender could emerge. I, I could see, I could certainly see a surprise happening here. This, yeah, Maybe. It's going to be a surprise. And this is the category I wouldn't mind if, if it was the surprise. Um, I think Dave Wendt has the... She, she's front runner Janice so locked right now. I I think even maybe the strategist would be okay that's, if she that's like, a good point. if she doesn't huh. win everything. But they would love a Jodie Foster. Man, I would I <laughs> yeah. would kill for Jodie Foster to, to be, get get to give another speech up there. So yeah, that'd be a nice one. There's going to yeah. be something surprising. There's no way, right, that this is just going to be boring and everything. All, all hand picked front runners. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, yourself. a lot of them feel tight enough where. I don't know what is to be expected. This is one of the few races where I'm like, you know, this is like an Allison Janney or an Octavia Spencer situation where it's the first win, she'll win them all. Maybe she'll lose the Oscar in a grand upset, but, it, you know, those things, these things on the precursor circuit become so preordained and she feels like the one of those four races to me. Yeah. The reason that David remembers Jodie Foster winning for the Mauritanian is he was really gunning for Glenn Close and Hillbilly Elegy that year. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the, the COVID Oscar year made us all do strange things. We can say that now. Um, before we wrap this up, is there anything in television that's worth flagging? Um, there is the oddity no. where uh, <laughs> a bunch of these, uh, they, this will happen before the Emmys. So Kieran Culkin was supposed to have won his succession Emmy already. Hasn't happened yet. Um, it does feel like all of these shows are a thousand years old because some of them are. Um, but are any of you like rooting for a speech in particular or anything that will keep us interested in this part of the show? I mean, I'd like to see Beef do well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's, I think it will. I think that's probably the contender for comedy, right? Um, yeah. Limited, th- limited. Yeah, it's in... Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think like the question for me is like how many succession actors can win? Yeah, uh, I think a lot of them. I think Sarah Snow because she's been bumped up to lead. She was yes. supporting last time uh, and won. 
and now she's in lead. So I think I think she'll she'll win that. Um, which means I think Elizabeth Debicki could win for supporting um, for playing oh, versus yeah. Diana. Yes, that's a good pick. She yeah. was nominated against Snook last year, but Snook won, and now Snook is in a different category. So, yeah, and know. the Golden Globe supporting is combining all. Uh, shows, which is creates in- really incredible. Comp- like Elizabeth Debicki is nominated against Abby Elliott for The Bear because um, those <laughs> shows are so similar. Um, it's really interesting in supporting um, actor, which I also wrote up for us. Where I said Matthew McFadden would win because he's been he was so dominant on the end of the show, but he's nominated against James Marsden in Jury Duty. How you compare those two performances, uh, I cannot begin to guess, but they'll have to figure it out. And Old Globes would have given it to James Marsden in Jury Duty. I'm quite confident in that. That that's very true. I'm I'm just happy for him that he's there. Good for you, James Marston. And that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week to talk about the Golden Globes, to look ahead toward the Critics' Choice Awards and the Emmys. The governors, uh, the governor, Oscar Governors Awards are in there somewhere. It is a really busy time. We've been kind of um, anticipating and dreading this period of January for months, and now it's here. Um, but we'll be back to talk about all of it. Find us in the meantime at Vanity Fair, on social media at VF Awards Insider, and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best title for a Little Goldman spin-off awards podcast goes to Kitty Rich. The hunk vote. The run through Evoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.